When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, everyone. It's Niall here from Sports Social. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of The Dugout. Now, if you're a regular listener to Football Social Daily, you'll know that The Dugout is our Premier League preview show featuring former Premier League professionals. And this week's episode is no different. Well, that's not strictly true. It is slightly different because the Premier League have decided that a number of the games that are taking place this weekend have been postponed due to COVID-19 reasons. We record this podcast on a Thursday and at the time of recording the show, those games hadn't yet been postponed. So I just thought I'd let you know ahead of time that some of the information in this show is probably already slightly out of date. But regardless, there were some really interesting conversations had and I hope you enjoy the episode anyway. But just to let you know that a number of these games have been called off. To be clear, the games that are going ahead in the Premier League this weekend and haven't been called off at the time of releasing this show, which is Friday night here in the UK, Aston Villa against Burnley and Leeds versus Arsenal, both taking place on Saturday, and Newcastle Man City and Wolves Chelsea on Sunday afternoon, as well as the Sunday evening kickoff between Spurs and Liverpool. So that's where we stand when it comes to the dugout and when it comes to the Premier League. I hope you enjoyed the show regardless, but first and foremost, I hope everyone is in the best health they can possibly be. Enjoy the show. The Dugout Premier League Preview Football Social Daily. The festive season is about friends, family and, of course, football. But this year, there might not be much football. The fixtures are falling at a rapid pace as coronavirus continues to cause chaos in the Premier League. What next for the top flight with a number of games already cancelled? Well, time will only tell on that front. Should the Premier League decide that the show will go on, then eyes this weekend will no doubt be on Newcastle's game with Man City as two sides at either end of the table do battle, whilst Arsenal will look to maintain their recent tilt for the top four when they travel to Leeds. Spurs against Liverpool and Chelsea against Wolves are also two tasty tussles in the context of the title race. But even though we'll preview those games on today's episode of The Dugout, football just feels a little bit flat at the moment. Welcome to the podcast. This is the show where former Premier League professionals give their thoughts on the weekend's action. Although we still don't know at the time of recording the show whether there'll be any action at the weekend, but we'll try our best regardless. 
My name's Niall and joining me today we've got former Southampton man Francis Benali. Hello Franny, welcome back to the show. Hey Niall, good to see you again. Nice to be on the show again. Good to have you back, thanks for joining us. And alongside Franny, we don't have a former player but someone who's watched enough football to envy Francis's 400 odd professional appearances. Journalist and podcaster Rob Blanchett's here. Good to have you with us Rob. Thanks Niall. No problem at all. Good to have you joining us. I trust both of you are in good health. It really does feel like this season at the moment, particularly at the time of recording, is on a bit of a knife edge when it comes to what happens next in the Premier League. The questions are, should the games continue? Should they go behind closed doors again? Should there be a break? So let's get straight into it and address that elephant in the room. COVID-19, of course, is what I'm referring to. Now, if you're a regular listener to the podcast, you'll know that The Dugout is our Premier League preview show, but there might not be a great deal to preview by the time you listen to this. But as I say, at the time of recording, which is currently Thursday evening, only Manchester United versus Brighton is officially called off. But Franny, I get the feeling that won't be the case for too much longer. It's probably likely that we're going to see more games fall foul of COVID in the next few hours or so. Yeah, you have to agree, Niall, that uh, it certainly seems that the, the United-Brighton fixture is going to be one of a handful or even a, a complete wipeout of, uh, of fixtures on the day. Um, you know, I, I, I guess sort of hearing numbers and announcements and, and how quick and how big they are and how quickly they're rising um, and the number of cases that we're seeing in, in clubs now, which is, again, a, a, a little bit more scary, I guess, in many ways, because they are within that protected football Premier League bubble as well that we see at, at elite level clubs now. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it, it's a worry. It's a concern, um, you know, for, for society as a whole. But uh and especially at this time of year where it's, you know, for us, the time of year is we want to be with family and friends. But also for those of us that love love the sport and football, it's a, a busy, packed campaign where there's an awful lot of football and a lot of enjoyment, hopefully, to be uh, to be experienced. And, um, you know, we're, we're faced with a lot of uncertainty and doubt at the moment. So, yeah, who, who knows how the weekend's going to look from a, from a fixture perspective, but... Fingers crossed, people are well, they stay safe and we can continue with some games. Yeah, absolutely. I'm with you, particularly with the word you use there, uncertainty. And I think that's the key. According to reports from that cancellation between Manchester United and Brighton, it's alleged, Rob, that United had only seven first team players available to them for the game against Brighton, hence the cancellation. You've been quite vocal on social media about your opinion and you think that we should pull the plug for at least 10 or 14 days just to kind of settle things down a bit yeah it reminds me of the obviously the start of the pandemic I was at the Manchester derby for for that game obviously when Scott McTominay scored that goal from 40 yards and I remember saying to people there at the club that day this is probably going to be the last game we play for a while and most people at the stadium journalists fans people from United were like why and it feels like that now it feels like there may be people haven't caught up to speed that Omicron is moving around society very, very quickly and that we're going to see the kind of wipeouts of being able to move around. Of course, we're not in a lockdown at the moment, but the government are kind of biding their time. And I think really the Premier League now have to just look at the health and safety angle. You know, I'd already decided that I wouldn't go to the Brighton game, even though I'm at all United matches, because I think 78,000 people being in one space, even though we're outdoors, it's a little bit risky. So I think this is the way it's going to go. You see United 24 
members of staff obviously contracting COVID. That's the the unconfirmed number. And that will only grow. So I think we're just going to see that games will get wiped out maybe now for the next week or two. Fingers crossed, everyone stays healthy. Yeah, absolutely. That's the key. First and foremost, whether you're a supporter, a player, a member of staff or any other person in, in society, staying healthy is, is the key for me personally. And although it is disappointing to see football possibly, you know, become a, a victim of the of the issues that we're seeing at the moment, if it's necessary, then it has to be done. And, you know, I think that that's something that's difficult for some people to, to grasp a hold of. Obviously, as Franny says, we're all big football fans. We don't want football to stop but if that's what it takes then it seems like maybe that's the decision that should be taken and I think it's not just the health and safety questions that crop up Franny it's things like the integrity of the competition should the Premier League have said United should have continued with only seven players available it wouldn't have made for much of a game against Brighton that's no disrespect to United's youngsters but it wouldn't have been the Premier League that everyone knows about with all the key players involved with with several star names probably having to sit out and likewise, you've got teams like Tottenham Hotspur have now had three games in a row cancelled for, for various reasons. They're going to have to play catch up. And it's all about when do we squeeze the games in? So before you know everything gets completely out of kilter, it seems like a decision will need to be made sooner rather than later. Yeah, and I agree with Rob. You know, the Premier League have got to sort of step in with some sort of announcement now. And um, the authorities have got to take some sort of lead rather than maybe being governed by the, the government and waiting for announcements from them. Um We've been through this already to a degree, so there's an element of experience and knowledge about how things may look uh, if the decisions are made. But it's it's not one that any of us wants to to, to be faced with. Let's be honest. It's um, we, we we've seen the impact that you know not having supporters in the stadium has had uh, on clubs and you know even supporters and individuals' own own lives and own personal health and mental well-being as well. It's um, it, it, it has a huge impact and implications on on every single one of us, um, you know. And this is the bigger picture going beyond football now. So, uh, yeah. But coming back to your point, Niall, about the integrity of the competition, we we want to see the the, the strongest teams, the strongest players, um, and you know, want that competitive edge to the competition. You don't want to be seeing a team full of inexperienced youngsters sort of you know struggling in a game just to to complete a fixture or fulfill a fixture but but I agree it's going to cause a massive headache if we go into some sort of you know lockdown of the the, the game to try and fit in once again what is already a, a pretty compact fixture schedule for for a number of clubs if not all of them yeah for sure and I'll be honest with you gents it's pretty depressing talking about this in the way that we are and it feels a bit stupid to do this but we're gonna have to crack on and preview the weekend's games even though they might not take place but we're here for a reason and as things stand recording this show right now uh, only Manchester United against Brighton has been cancelled so we'll we'll move on and talk about Newcastle against Manchester City which is scheduled to be played on Sunday at two um, let's focus on Newcastle first Rob, they're in the middle of a tough run. Three games against Liverpool, Manchester City this weekend, and then next up on the 27th is against Manchester United. We knew that it was going to be tough for Eddie Howe when he went into Newcastle. When you're coming up against three of the biggest teams in the country, is it about keeping the spirit? Because the chances are they're probably not going to pick up many points. Yeah, keeping the spirit and getting to the January transfer window. So obviously we said we don't really know what's happening with the schedule at the moment. But that club definitely needs some new faces in there to help Eddie Howe 
get to where they need to be. And that's obviously survival this season. Um, so I, I just think that with Newcastle and the decisions they've made to bring in Eddie Howe, they, they've gone for a more what I would call holistic route where they're trying to build from the ground up a little bit. They're not going for maybe the big flash signings or the big flash manager, but it's a tough run for them now. And they've just got to get over these next two or three, four weeks so they can get to that point where they can get the recruitment right. Yeah, we did mention this on the podcast in recent weeks about you know Newcastle kind of limping their way to the January window, desperate to make signings, but there's still a number of games, or at least there was scheduled a number of games between now and then. And they'll be thinking, well, we need to get at least something because it might be too late by the time it gets to January. It's always going to be a huge ask coming up against the defending champions, Manchester City, even more so after that statement victory over Leeds midweek, Franny. They won 7-0 did Pep Guardiola's side. Um, obviously a huge win in the context of the title race. What what did that mean to Manchester City and what sort of a message do you think that victory over Leeds sent to the chasing pack in Liverpool and Chelsea? Well, it's quite a, a, a statement scoreline, isn't it, uh, from City? Not that Rob will be too pleased to have seen it, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, it's uh, it, it was a big, big result, wasn't it? It was uh, just a, a completely commanding performance just typifying what Manchester City are capable of doing. I think Leeds United found themselves on the, on the wrong end of that that performance from City. But let's be honest, they're, they're quite capable of doing that to a, a large number of teams on, on any given weekend. So, um, yeah, everything clicked for them. You know, Leeds United obviously got their their problems here and there, but uh, certainly not, you know, I've been you know, a Southampton man. I've, I've, I've experienced some, some hefty defeats in recent times as well from a team and, and, and they're tough to, tough to accept. <laughs> they're tough to accept. But, you know, you, you learn a lot from these kind of games, um, especially when you're the, the, the team on the receiving end of a heavy defeat like that. But, yeah, City are just out there. They're just the, that well-oiled machine that you know is going to be in and around the race for the title come the end of the season. Yeah, it was always going to be inevitable that City would 100% be in the title race in defence of their crown. Here's an interesting question for you, Rob, and it's almost away from the on-field stuff. Jack Grealish cost City £100 million from Aston Villa. A few people have thrown the question marks up as to whether he was worth it and whatnot. I always say a player never chooses their price tag. You know, they always come with that pressure, but it's not their choice what, what gets paid for them in the end. I think what's interesting is in some of the interviews he's had recently about the chances he's missed, he's mentioned that he couldn't hit a barn door and he's quite a a sort of a happy-go-lucky guy and he shows personality. How nice is it to see someone who does have a a bit of personality in the world where players are so often quite sanitised and media trained? Yeah, it's a good thing. And I think for Jack, you know, the move going to Manchester City, it wasn't a huge surprise, but of course the price tag was. So I think whenever a player moves, certainly to a big club, you carry that with you. And it's difficult, you know, I think when you're you're doing all your media work, especially, let's say, you're not returning the numbers on the pitch that everyone expects for £100 million, it can be really, really tough. So I think Jack's done really well in in the kind of opening gambit for his time at Manchester City. He just now needs to find his role within the team because City rotates so effectively, they work so hard that you've got to be world-class every week. That's the way it works at Manchester City. So I think for Jack, a player that, that's never played Champions League football before, obviously before this season, uh, never been on that stage, this is all new to him and he needs to get used to it. 
Yeah, and I always enjoy listening to what Jack Grealish has to say. As I mentioned, he's got a good personality, someone that I enjoy listening to. His Manchester City side will go to Newcastle this Sunday at quarter past two. Saturday evening's kickoff at 5.30 takes place at Elland Road, where Arsenal are the visitors to take on Leeds. And we mentioned that Leeds defeat to Man City. Let's talk about the other side of that coin, Franny. They need a response, don't they, after that hammering by City. They've got some injuries as well. Calvin Phillips, Patrick Bamford, Rodrigo, all injured, three huge players for them. When do injuries stop becoming an excuse or is that an unfair thing to level at Leeds? I think injuries is obviously a clear factor and um, you know you can't skirt around that. Sometimes that has a, an impact over a longer period of time and especially when it's key members of a, of a team or a squad. Um, they'll just look nervously at the position in the table and quite clearly will want to try and put some sort of run together to to pull away from that 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 zone of the table, um, but they're coming up against an opponent who's hidden a bit of form. I mean, their home form Arsenal is wonderful, so you know if they can replicate that on the road, they're they're certainly going to be a bit of a contender for the re- remainder of the season. But um, from Leeds' p- perspective, they've just got to try and lick their wounds a little bit from that City result and have a reaction. And uh, I I think when you have a defeat of that scale you see a reaction of some sort. Even if it's not necessarily the result, they'll maybe see it in the effort levels or um, the commitment that they're going to show in the game itself because you certainly don't want to be getting into a, a, a bit of a rut from a, a performance and a result, result perspective where you know it just continues on the back of a heavy defeat, another defeat, and then you start thinking, well, where's, where's the next draw? Where's the next win coming from? So, um, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd expect to see a, a, a pretty instant reaction to that that defeat against City. Yeah, speaking of heavy defeats, Arsenal have been on the receiving end of a few against some of the bigger clubs, Rob. They lost 3-2 to Man United. They got a hammer in from both Liverpool and Manchester City, yet they've kind of gone under the radar and moved up to fourth with a midweek win over West Ham. Do you think they've quietly gone about their business? And if that is the case, will that suit Mikel Arteta, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, obviously the noise around Aubameyang at the moment, none of that really matters. And why is that? It's because their young players are performing. So, you know, talking about Manchester United just a minute ago about Ralph Ranić, and he talks about players on their first contract being able to give you energy. I think you see that at Arsenal with the likes of Smith-Rowe, with Saka, Martinelli, all of these players are desperate to perform. They just need some structure. So I think for Arteta, he's doing a good job. They are genuine top four contenders now. They're, I think they're ahead of the curve. You've only got to look at the start of the season. People were talking about the manager being replaced. I don't think we're at that stage now. In terms of that start to the season, I think it was their worst ever beginning to a Premier League campaign. They went into the first international break, bottom of the standings, having lost three in a row and I think conceded three in each game. And their goal difference was something like minus nine. It was a horror show to start the season for Arsenal. But as you say, they've they've turned it around and fair play to Arteta for doing that. But just picking up on those games against the teams I mentioned, lost to United lost to City and to Liverpool pretty convincingly. Does that just show how far they are away from from being a challenger again? I don't think they should be comparing themselves maybe to City and Liverpool in that bracket at the moment. You know, uh, There was an interesting statistic just yesterday where they said that this is the highest they've been in the league for two and a half years at this stage of a season, which kind of is shocking when you think that Arsenal are a perennial winner of this uh, division in years gone by. So I think they just need to take it a little bit nice and slow, let the Aubameyang thing fizzle out, because it will fizzle out eventually. They can deal with the player individually with him. And just keep growing, because I think they've got so many good players in their squad from back to front. 
where they just need to stay on the growth cycle. Just don't rush it. I think, you know, believe in Arteta, believe in his practices and just take it one step at a time. Yeah, all of the talk around Arsenal at the moment is to do with the captaincy, of course, as Rob rightly points out. Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang has been stripped of that captaincy, Franny. Now, when you were playing, you would have come up against Arsenal teams who were known for their leadership and and some of the players on the pitch. You think of the likes of Tony Adams and, of course, Vieira as well, and and several players even before that in the George Graham era, I guess. Um, What do you think's changed at Arsenal? Because a key thread throughout that, uh, those sides that did have great leaders they were also coached by Wenger you know Wenger was the manager there for 20 years but it it seems like ever since that Invincibles team they've really struggled to nail down a a true leader is there any any reason you put that down to perhaps yeah I mean it's a a difficult one in many ways isn't it but I I think like I say the names that you reeled off from an era that I would have come up against they, they they just had the personalities the characters to go alongside the ability that they had individually and collectively and that that was what made them a force, obviously, with someone like Arsene Wenger at the helm as well. So uh, I, I think what changed over the years and what we've seen in more recent times is that not necessarily the ability of the players themselves, because quite clearly there's, they're, they're very good footballers. Um, but it was just maybe not having some of the same personality and characteristics of the team that went before them or, or players that went before them at Arsenal. And... Uh, you know, maybe that's hard to sort of really put your finger on exactly what makes that kind of player now. The the, the sport is very different. We know that to to, to that sort of era. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it was definitely an ingredient that that Arsenal have been lacking for a long time. And you know, many of us were sort of looking at it and saying, well, you know, Arsenal now are almost like a, near, a bit of an easy touch. Not not talking about today, but in recent times they. They, they didn't have that steel to them that they did once have. And uh, I think that's an ingredient that not just Arsenal, but any team needs throughout their side to a degree. And, um, you know, as Rob mentioned, you know, Arteta's now on a, on a bit of a process of putting the club back in that area where they can, over time, compete with those sides that are way ahead of them at the moment, like City, like Liverpool. Um, and uh, it's, it's going to be a little bit of a slow burner, I think. It's interesting what makes a good captain, what what ingredients you need to, to be a good leader and a good captain, because I mean we've had this debate on the show before about is it any more than just a, a piece of ribbon that goes around your bicep and doing the coin toss at the start of the game? And you've been a, a club captain in your time at Southampton, Franny. So is there more to it? Is it more of a, a psychological aspect of being a captain? Do you, do you feel pressure to, to lead the team or is it simply just one of those token gestures where you are wearing an armband, doing the coin toss, talking to the referee and that's about it? I, I think there's a different elements to it now, to be honest. Um, I, I think first and foremost, it, it needs to be a player that other players within the squad and members of staff respect first and foremost. Um, so there's an element of uh, an individual, that captain, that will be the, 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 the skipper out on the pitch, someone that sets the standard on and off the pitch, uh, not just in matches, but on the training ground and, and even outside of the, the, the club as well. So, um, you know, you, you, you look at picking that right individual and, you know, it's, it's often a characteristic as well. I think the, the, the individual, whoever a skipper may be themselves, um, certain players thrive wearing an armband, where I think maybe others would not be too keen on having that responsibility. So it's, it's got to work from the player themselves perspective, but also, you know, 
how they're viewed by others within the club. And um, yeah, you know, I, I'm, I may be a little bit old school in the sense that I, I think a certain captain would like to have certain characteristics. But having said that, I, I played with a skipper in Matt Letizier for many years who was not a shouter and a baller or someone that went charging around the pitch and crunching into tackles and being what you would call maybe a, a, a leader in that sense. But he led through example. Um, and through his performances on the football pitch, and uh, you know, and that's that that's clever. You know, whoever it is gets selected. Um, you know, whatever skill sets they bring to it, whether it's from the playing perspective or the motivation side or the um, the respect element or just driving a, a, a squad of people on on a day to day basis. Um, there's there's lots of elements to to being what I would call a, a good captain. Just finally on this one, then Rob. Aubameyang is no longer the Arsenal skipper. Are there any obvious candidates for you amongst that Arsenal squad that you think could take on the armband? Do you know, I was just exactly thinking about that question while Franny was talking, because it's a difficult one, isn't it? When you look at them and their youth and the kind of the project that they're doing there, who actually takes the armband? Do you give it to an experienced head like a maybe a Lacazette, a, a like for like for Aubameyang? Or do you go with someone who's really young? Do you give it to Ben White? So I think that that there's options for Arteta and leadership is a kind of visceral thing. It does move around. I think it's different, obviously, now to, to maybe how it was 20 years ago in the Premier League in terms of captaincies. But you need someone who's going to play and represent that club and be a kind of figurehead. I kind of think of someone like Declan Rice at West Ham. You know, it doesn't really matter about the age there. It's more about the intention. And I think Arsenal need that. They need someone who will lead the club both publicly and on the football pitch. And it's going to be, I think, one of those younger names. Maybe there may be a surprise in there when Arteta names his captain. Yeah, I mean, I love that point about Declan Rice. And that was in evidence after the game against Arsenal that West Ham had midweek where Rice came out at just 22 years old and said that wasn't a performance worthy enough to be a top four team. And he wasn't shy in um, not advertently blaming Soufal for giving away a tackle for the penalty but he mentioned that wasn't a good enough performance and a good enough tackle from him and Soufal's seven years his senior so that you know that's definitely something that I think that can be can be taken out of the equation the age if someone is, is showing those natural leadership qualities then then why not give them the armband we'll wait and see what Arteta does do when his Arsenal side visit leads this Saturday at 5.30 final game we'll discuss before we go to a quick break will take place at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium let's face it it probably won't happen because Tottenham are one of the sides embroiled in this Covid crisis at the moment in the Premier League but Liverpool are due to be the visitors presuming this game goes ahead it will take place at Sunday at 4.30 multiple games in hand over the rest of the league as we've said already in the show Franny if they win those games they could see themselves in the top four. First of all, do you think they will win them? And second of all, how much of a surprise would it be to see Spurs in the Champions League places after what's felt like a really stop-start season for them? Yeah, it's, uh, it'd be quite an achievement, really, wouldn't it? I mean, like I say, they've got those games in hand. They've coming off the back of three victories in the Premier League. Um, it, it'd be quite incredible, to be honest. I mean, because maybe... Quite wrongly, I was looking at them early on in the season and thinking, God, they're, they're just so way off it that uh, you know they're completely out of contention now. But I guess it's just a reminder that a run of results, one way or another, can quickly sort of change your fortunes for for the good or bad. And uh, they're certainly in one of the teams that are you know putting things together in the right aspect. This will be a big test for them for sure. Um, but as you say, with games in hand, it's it's an opportunity for them to to climb even higher. 
Yeah, it would certainly be an interesting situation surrounding Tottenham in the next few weeks, if not the next few hours. Um, as for Liverpool, they're in a run of Spurs, Leeds, Leicester and Chelsea as their next four. And you pinpoint Chelsea really, Rob, as the, as the one that stands out for that uh, for that run. It comes in early January. Just how important are these next few games for Liverpool, considering they're currently a point behind Man City at the top of the table? And they know that in January, they're likely to lose some of their top players, Salah, Mane, to the Africa Cup of Nations. Yeah, it's an important run for them, but they've been so good this season. I've, I've watched Liverpool for work and I think when you look at Liverpool and you look at Manchester City, the the kind of style of football, the energy, the work rate, everything that they bring to their matches, it's all just spot on. And I think this year, looking at Liverpool, I think they're almost as good as the year they won the title. You know, when I'm kind of looking at all the facets of each position, they've got all of that in place. But you're right. I think with the African Cup of Nations coming up, and obviously Mohamed Salah being so good at the moment, Mane being so important, it's just crucial that they get that run of games and they get victories all the way through it. In terms of Salah and his importance we spoke about captains just a few minutes ago is it more a sense of his importance is beyond the performances it's just even him being on the team sheet is enough to 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 strike fear into opposition sides even ones as accomplished as Spurs yeah and he's transcended that hasn't he like when we talk about superstar footballers your Messi's and your Ronaldo's and players like that but when you look at Salah now Every game he's productive, every game he's dangerous, every game he produces a kind of world-class consistency that's not normal. It's kind of, it's a, it's a cut above. So I think for Liverpool that when they lose him during that, that African Cup of Nations for those weeks, they will be weaker just because people will look at them and assume that they are weaker and they'll try and exploit them for that. You know, they'll be able to do that because you might have a jotter in the team, but he certainly isn't Salah. So there's all of that balancing, I think, for, for Klopp to do. He's very good at it, obviously. He's also a world-class entity into the way he manages. And they just, I think, through that month period, they know that leading into these four games, they need three points, three points, three points, three points, because they might be slipping every now and then in that month of January, if, of course, there are games. Yeah, certainly the African Cup of Nations will have an impact not just on Liverpool, but on other Premier League sides. And we've seen some top players come from that continent in the Premier League era, Didier Drogba, Yaya Torre, your old mate Ali Dia, Franny, just to name three players <laughs> that have, have laced up their boots um, and come from Africa in the Premier League. Obviously, Salah's Egyptian. Where does he rank? Is he is he one of the best, if not the best, African player to ever play in the Premier League? Because, I mean, his numbers, as Rob say, are absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's not just the, the goals and the performances, as Rob's just touched on. Um, you know, I, I I can picture vividly. You know, sometimes there's just certain players have an aura and a presence on them on a pitch, and they they don't always necessarily have to be performing and playing particularly well. Just their presence on the pitch, you you're so aware of, particularly as a defender trying to come up against a striker like him or an attacking player like him. Um, you know, you just, even it's almost like a little bit of a mental drain as well because you're so focused on what they're doing and where they are and trying to stop them that, um, like I say, it, it can have a big big effect on, a, on, on an opposition. So, yeah, to, to sort of have those sort of players missing and the quality of those sort of players out of your side um, leaving for a competition is, is going to affect not just Liverpool but other teams as well. Um, and, yeah, he's, he's, he's been absolutely outstanding quite clearly from what we've seen. And um, his, his, his numbers, the stats just back everything up that um, we're seeing and talking about at the moment. But he's right up there from 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 you know the you know 
yeah, I, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. I don't know, you guys may have other suggestions, but he's, he's got to be right up there amongst the, the, the best African players. Yeah, yeah, no doubt about it. Absolutely no doubt about that. And his Liverpool teammates, along with him, will travel to Spurs Sunday 4.30, presuming that game goes ahead. Still plenty more Premier League fixtures to get stuck into. We'll do it next here on The Dugout. The Dugout, Premier League preview, Football Social Daily. The Dugout, Premier League preview, Football Social Daily. Welcome back to the show. My name's Niall. I've got Rob Blanchett and former Southampton man Francis Bernali alongside me to preview the weekend's Premier League games. Presuming they go ahead, we don't know yet at the time of recording this show, but we'll get stuck in anyway. And the next one we're going to talk about is Wolves against Chelsea, which is a 2pm start on Sunday. If you look at the statistics when it comes to Wolves, Rob, they've only scored 13 goals this season and they've conceded 14, but they're in the top half of the table with a minus one goal difference. They've kept things pretty tight and they're probably going to have to continue to do that against Chelsea this weekend. Yeah, they're a strange and wonderful team, Wolves, because when you dig into the deeper stats and look at them, defensively, they're really, really good. And on the front foot, they're really, really good. It's just that they somehow can't quite marry it into victory after victory. So I think they're a really dangerous team. I think they're they're kind of the side where you might expect one thing and then you hit them with a big performance. And I think Chelsea, the way Chelsea have actually played recently, it's a good matchup. I think that the Blues will have trouble against Wolves. And if Wolves can actually start firing, you could see them making a, a really kind of decent second half to the season and getting those victories that their that their stats certainly deserve. How much credit does Bruno Large deserve then in that respect, Rob? Because obviously when Nuno Espirito Santo left the club, it was uh, almost a mutual parting of ways because there, there were fundamental issues at the club in terms of styles of play and the direction, I think, that the club was going in Wolves hierarchy weren't too happy about. So Bruno Large has come in as a relatively unknown for most neutral Premier League fans and you'd have to say he's done a decent job with pretty much the same squad yeah he deserves all the credit I think the way that he set them up through pre-season and going into the new campaign he did it all right you know he wanted to play attacking football he wanted to show what he can do both on the back foot and the front foot I think he has showed that so the stats do support that but of course victories mean everything so you just talked there about Nuno I think his time at Wolves had come to an end and I think it was more Wolves fans that were concerned about the transition from Nuno, who obviously they loved, to a new coach. But I think he's shown absolutely 100% that he's Premier League quality. And I wouldn't be surprised to see him at a bigger club, maybe in a year or two, because he, I think he's got that acumen as a coach. Yeah, certainly Wolves have impressed recently. They're one of the sides in the Premier League in the best form. And up until just a couple of weeks ago, Chelsea were leading the way. They were top of the Premier League and they were in excellent form as well. But they've hit a bit of a stumble recently, Franny. Do you think that Thomas Tuchel might be scratching his head a little bit as to how he's found his side behind the leaders after being in front for such a long period. Yeah, they've been uh, right in amongst it, haven't they? And, uh, and 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 such a top side as well. I mean, you know, the success with the Champions League and it's it's just hitting the ground running on the Premier League as well this season. So yeah, a little bit strange to sort of see them sat in third and a little way off on the points tally, but. Um, you know, just having that, that recent blip and defeat will, again, a little bit like we spoke about um, Leeds United and having a reaction to a, a result and a performance, uh, Chelsea will look to bounce back and stay in the race as well. And I've got every belief that they've, um, they've got the quality within the, the club, the players, the manager to, to, to stay in that race as well. And uh, as we know, this is a, well, 
potentially a, a, a busy schedule this month. Um, obviously, we're unsure at this moment how that's going to pan out, but you know, there's there's lots of points up for grabs, and 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 that's when the the stronger clubs, the stronger squads um, are able to sort of maybe see that through, depending on their own injury and suspension situations. So yeah, Chelsea will be right in it for sure, and um, we'll be back on track very soon, I'm sure. Chelsea are one of multiple clubs in the league who have registered some positive COVID cases. The likes of Werner and Lukaku were mentioned and obviously they were injured for around about a month uh, and have returned to the fold in recent weeks. But regardless of whether Lukaku plays or not, he needs to start scoring some goals, doesn't he? He does. And, and I think for Chelsea, in terms of having a successful title challenge for the second half of the campaign, the real crux of the question is, how do you get Romelu Lukaku in the team playing every week, scoring your goals. So I think that, you know, as, as Franny said there, you know, Chelsea's great achievement last year with the Champions League. Tuchel managed to work it out defensively, get his team winning games without being spectacular. But I think when you bring someone like Lukaku in, who's a kind of out and out number nine, your system has to reflect that. It still, to me, looks like that Chelsea look like a better team when Lukaku doesn't start. They look more balanced. They look like they've got more of a base from the back to front. But of course, recent results have shown that if they want to take the next step, if they want to be Premier League champions, they've got to find a way to get Lukaku scoring goals because he can't be a bit part player, certainly not for the price that he came for. He's got to be the guy that leads that line. He can't be this season's Werner. You know, he can't do that. He can't He can't get 15 goals or 10 goals or something silly, a small number, and then Chelsea expect to become Premier League champions. That simply will not happen. No, I think you're right. And he started off well, but since he got injured, we haven't really seen much from him since. Or indeed, even before the injury, he was uh, during a bit of a, uh, enduring a bit of a fallow spell. Anyway, Chelsea will travel to Wolves Sunday at 2 o'clock. Uh, on Saturday at 3 o'clock, West Ham hosts Norwich City. And the Canaries travel to the London Stadium, bottom of the Premier League, having scored eight goals. Dean Smith is... Uh, Steady the ship ever so slightly at Norwich, but steady in that ship is not quite enough to keep them up at this moment in time. It very much needs to be full steam ahead. As for David Moyes, his terrible away record at Arsenal continues. I don't think he's won a game there in the, in the Premier League since he's been a manager, which is getting on for 20 years now, I think. Um, they dropped to fifth with that defeat to Arsenal. And as I said earlier on in the show, Declan Rice said that the performance wasn't that of a top four team. I guess the simple thing to suggest, Franny, is they just need to be back on it this weekend against Norwich. And it's a, a decent game to do so coming up against bottom of the league. Yeah, I guess with respect to Norwich, if if there was a game you know, to, to come back and have a, a positive impact after the last result then this is going to be one of those games and and a home fixture as well which would be a a great opportunity for them I I guess with the words that that Declan Rice said you know that it's quite clear that you know there's a culture there that David Moyes is is creating Um, there's an accountability amongst the players as well Uh, and it's it's great to see Um, you know it's I I think from a, a, a perspective for a title race is probably the most exciting that we've seen for, for some years. Uh, it's not just amongst one, two, three teams. You know, there's there's a number of sides that are looking to be in that top four now. And, um, you know, with the likes of Arsenal starting to put things together and Spurs with their games in hand and just starting to, you know, sort of go on a bit of a run recently. All of a sudden, the dynamics at that end of the table are, are absolutely fascinating. And it's, it's great to see West Ham in and amongst all that as well. So, yeah, I'm sure they'll be looking to to bounce back immediately uh, on Saturday. 
There's not a great deal to say about Norwich that we haven't already said on this show in the past. Simply, they just have to win all of their games pretty much between <laughs> now and the end of the season, or at least pick up points on a far more regular basis to, to stay up. What I think is interesting is what Franny said about that uh, that culture that's been fostered at West Ham and that responsibility and all the players stepping up and, and showing that they're, they're worthy to represent the club. I mean, obviously, David Moyes has a huge part to play in that. What is it that David Moyes is doing at West Ham, Rob, that maybe he didn't show or arguably, in his case, didn't get the time to show when he was the manager of your club, Manchester United? Well, I think it's the Everton formula. You know, so when he was at Everton, he had time. He was working with a certain base of players of a certain quality and he was given that that kind of window to make them better, to be a team that's rather than expectations of mid-table or below, that you could look, say, at the top eight and be comfortable there. So I think he's done that at West Ham. And he's got the credibility there in terms of those players who could take that next step. You look at how consistent Antonio's been. You look at, uh, we said we talked about their Declan Rice. But from back to front, West Ham have been a good unit. So they, they're there and they're in the conversation for the right reasons. I think the biggest hurdle now for them will be in then say the next year or two is holding those players keeping someone like Declan Rice because when your reputation grows and swells like that and you're you're talking about top four or top six then suddenly those big players those big teams are going to come knocking and I think Declan Rice will definitely be one of those players. Yeah, I like that point that you make there, Rob. And actually, I suppose uh, being a Southampton man, Franny, you'll understand that because, you know, I often see on social media, um, remember this team, the streets won't forget the Southampton team of 2013 or whatever it was when there's a number of good players in that group that Southampton had and then they were picked off one by one and it hasn't quite been the same for for you for you down on the south coast since so I suppose you'll have sympathy with with West Ham if that does become the case and and some of their key assets get picked off in the seasons to come yeah as, as you rightly say it's something that we've seen a lot happen here at Southampton over the years and um, yeah I, I guess when you are a, a team uh, you'd have to say probably West Ham United are sort of punching to a degree above maybe what would be expected of them which is great um, but it does bring those problems because taking that next step again to really be pushing in the top four is, is a whole new level again, um, would require obviously further investment. Um, and there does come that point, as Rob touched on, that you know through your own success, all of a sudden other clubs will start looking at the talent within your team and come calling. And, and to a point, certainly from a Southampton perspective we've seen over the years, the money's involved. It's it's just a, a formula that, unfortunately, it's it's, it's the nature of, of of what it is now. And 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 players or certain players are likely to move on. Um, and it, then it's how you recruit, how you reinvest, and try and maintain where you want to be as a club. But um, yeah, for sure, players like Declan Rice are certainly going to be standout uh, players, which will catch the eye of other teams for sure. West Ham take on Norwich three o'clock on Saturday afternoon, taking place at the same time at St. Mary's. We may as well talk about them now. Southampton against Brentford. You were at the game midweek, Franny, between Saints and Crystal Palace. The game finished 2-2. Where do you think Southampton are currently in terms of their ambitions as a side? What is Ralph Hasenhurtle's ambition? What's the vision of Southampton at the moment this season? I genuinely believe he wants to, to, to take the club as high as possible. Quite clearly, any manager would and any player would. Um, the reality, though, I think with the, uh, the squad we have, with the, the, the money that he has at his disposal, 
um, or has had to this point is reality is you know something like anything in top 10 would be a, a, a big achievement um, especially when you're looking at where they are at the moment um, a lot of positive things that you see uh, I guess from the, the frustration and disappointing time at times is you know um, maybe not seeing games out a little bit of game management just sort of winning games or picking up points in matches when they play well enough to do so, yet they're just not really sort of getting over the line in certain games. Uh, but at the same time, you know, there's there's a stat, I think that I was a bit frustrated the other night that they they conceded a goal again from a winning possession. But looking at it in a different way, that's a good thing in some ways because at least we're scoring first in many games. Uh, and and quite clearly, that's a good thing. It would be a lot worse if we weren't scoring at all. Um, and you, you mentioned about Wolves and the lack of goals that they've had so far this season. You know, if, if you were really struggling to score goals, I'd be more concerned than maybe having a stat where we score first and we're losing points uh, from winning positions. So there, there, there's a lot of good things happening. It's going to be one of those things where it's a long-term thing. Um, like other managers, I'm pleased to see that he's got an opportunity to work his philosophy. And hopefully, I just think to, to improve on that, it's going to take... Some players coming in, probably a bit of investment, but also developing the squad and the youngsters that are coming through at the club at the time now as well. As for Brentford, we know their model, even though they don't like it being called Moneyball, Rob. Everyone likes to call it Moneyball. Um, And Thomas Frank is a manager who's won plenty of plaudits, not just from his time in the Championship, but also since his Brentford team have come up to the Premier League. But he mentioned in his pre-match press conference, of which he was informed midway through the conference that he'll have 13 positive COVID cases amongst his squad. He mentioned that he just wanted this weekend's games postponed. And we've already touched upon it briefly at the start of the show. But can you understand his concern from a managerial perspective? Yeah, 100%. And I think that anyone that's ever run a business or had staff where you've had to worry about those staff and give them the optimum conditions to, to do their jobs and their roles you know that when you've been there, that you have to make tough choices. And, and, and I said, this is where we are now with, uh, with Omicron and COVID. It's about, he wants to protect his staff, but he also wants to win games. He's got to balance all of that out. I think when you have that many members of your staff go ill so quickly, that all you can do is kind of down tools and maybe toe that line of saying, right, games need to be cancelled. So I wasn't surprised by his press, his press conference at all. I think he's an enigmatic character. He's one of these guys who's come into the Premier League and taken to it like a duck to water, really. He's been fantastic. Uh, and I think, really, his comments on on kind of the next week or two in terms of games, I think, are spot on. Yeah, it's definitely been impressive to see how Brentford have adapted to the Premier League. Still a long way to go, though, and they won't be uh, breathing any signs of relief just yet. They take on Southampton at St Mary's 3 o'clock on Saturday. United against Brighton was what we were going to talk about next. That one was the early kickoff Saturday lunchtime, half 12. But that game, of course, is off. So only three more games left to get through and we'll do it next after this. The Dugout Premier League Preview Football Social Daily The Dugout Premier League Preview Football Social Daily. Welcome back to the show. Time to talk about the final three Premier League games scheduled to take place this weekend. Of course, we don't know just yet whether they will indeed happen. But Villa against Burnley is penciled in for a three o'clock start on Saturday at Villa Park. And they've only dropped points to Man City and Liverpool since Gerrard came into the club. Rob, how far can Aston Villa go this season under Gerrard, do you think? 
well new manager bounce, isn't it? And I think for, for Steven Gerrard, Villa is a perfect club for him to come in and do his thing after what he did at, at Glasgow Rangers. Uh, I think with Villa, it, it, for them, it's it's more about, I think, consolidation this season and making sure that, first of all, they stay well away from the relegation zone. They've obviously got bigger ambitions than that. I mean, we talked about this recently, about them being the fifth richest club in England. So it shows that Aston Villa have got the funds and the resources to go really high. But I think this year, again, it's just a case of, I think, pepping the balloon up, just keep going, let Gerard break in slowly. And with that, getting positive results as a background. Yeah, certainly um, from what I've seen from Villa, they've not been outstanding. They've not blown any sides away. I mean, a recent game at uh, Villa Park against Leicester where Leicester were by far the better team. But as soon as Leicester took the lead, they were level within three minutes and and there was nothing spectacular about what they did. They were just efficient. And I guess that's kind of a bit of heart and spirit that Steven Gerrard has instilled in them since he took over from Dean Smith. As for Burnley, heart and spirit are often some of their key traits when it comes to to their qualities they're not often considered one of the higher quality teams in terms of their technical proficiencies franny but they are still in the relegation zone and they haven't played now for two games their game against spurs was called off due to snow and then their midweek fixture against watford was off due to coronavirus so how does it work as a player when you haven't played for a couple of games should these burnley players be fresher or will they be rustier because they haven't played what's the kind of what's the process uh, I, I think at this moment in time, it, it probably would have helped them to a degree with the, the, the number of games and the stage of the season we're at. Uh, given what we're potentially looking towards and maybe games not being as regular as what we would, were expecting, it, it could be a little bit of a negative, obviously sort of having to, to readjust and keep fitness levels up and match fitness, etc. So um, who knows? Obviously, that that will come out in the wash over the coming days and weeks I'm sure but um, but yeah it's, it's it's a difficult one um, you know I, I remember as a player this time of year there's you know actually not just Christmas time or the busy schedules it was throughout the the season really and, and throughout my career where difficult to put maybe a percentage on it but you know very few games really or not too many where you're playing what I would call 100% fit there'd always be an element of fatigue or you know, sort of tiredness or, you know, a, a little bit of an injury that you'd be playing with. And, you know, those, those are the things that you've got to overcome as, a, as, as an individual, but also as a, as a group of players. And Burnley have got not the biggest of squads, uh, but as you said, those, those characteristics that Sean Dyche and the Burnley team have and have as a club, they're going to have to call upon in, you know, big amounts to, to you know, survive again this season because they just need to stay in touch with those sides in and around and above them at the moment. They don't want a big gap to be opening up for sure. No, that's right. And dressing rooms don't smell like deep heat anymore, Franny, unfortunately. <laughs> but I can guarantee you that the home one at Turf Moor probably still does smell of, uh, smell of deep heat from, from years gone by. Uh, that game set for this weekend at Villa Park is a three o'clock start on Saturday between Aston Villa and Burnley. Everton against Leicester's our focus now. This is the lunchtime kickoff, 12pm on Sunday. Where's Rafa Benitez been getting it wrong for Everton, Rob? Is it fair to suggest that he's been getting it wrong? Because obviously there's been plenty of injuries. It's been well publicised about his Liverpool links and, and what he could offer to Goodison Park and Everton when he went there. But where's it all been going wrong for him, do you think? Well, results haven't been good enough. That's the first bit. But there is this discourse, I think, amongst Everton fans that obviously because of his links to Liverpool, that they're just not going to be as patient as they might have been with another coach. So... 
Where's he getting it wrong? You know, I think this is a little bit for me, a bit like Jose Mourinho, and that's n- there's nothing about the pedigree of the manager. We know what what Rafa Benitez is in the same way we know what Jose is, but it's difficult. I think years down the line, applying maybe some older methods to kind of new stock. So it's teaching old dogs new tricks and things like that. So I think that for him, in terms of developing that Everton squad, that's been the issue. The kind of manager that they need at the moment is someone like David Moyes. You know, someone like that who will take the talent level and elevate them with the coaching. Rafa's a great coach. You know, he's won everything in the game. You can't ever kind of uh, attack his his background and the stuff that he's achieved. But I just think that with the things that Everton need with their squad development... I'm not sure he's the right coach to do it at this time. I just think it's a really interesting topic and you could probably do a whole side podcast on it about the cultural differences in the game and in society in general that impact how managers are perceived and how they work. So you're totally right about Jose Mourinho, but it feels like nowadays with social media and the spotlight, which is as scrutinous as it's ever been on footballers, Rob, it almost feels like players now more need an arm around the shoulder rather than a boot up the arse. And it, and it feels like sometimes those methods, those old school methods that you mentioned, aren't, aren't quite as effective. I mean, I remember uh, Peter Crouch saying once that Rafa Benitez would never tell you well done, even if you'd scored a hat-trick and won the game 5-0. He'd never say well done. He'd always be hoping for more. And I can understand that that point of view, but I guess it leads to a wider debate over whether because of the, the, the shift culturally, culturally and socially off the pitch and even within football to an extent that maybe some of those methods are slightly outdated and through no fault of the managers or their pedigree of coaching. Yeah, it's moving with the times. And I think also, you know, you've got to look at it this way, that every Premier League club, every coach is now managing 20 millionaires. So that's a thing. You know, that's something that you have to now look at psychologically and change. Obviously, even when Franny was playing back then, it wasn't like that. You might have had your top tier players who were obviously very rich. And there was wealth within the squad. But it was a different level. I think the other side of it there is, as you said, about looking after the players' needs. You know, now players spend their off time on social media and Xboxes. So that's a different thing again. So you have to manage kind of the mindset of players. Back in the old days, you know, players might have gone out a little bit more and been maybe in the public a little bit more or down a pub or doing those kind of things. So it's all very different now. And I think for old school managers... That's the challenge for them, to be able to look at this in a new school way. And I think the coaches like Klopp, Guardiola, these are the kind of coaches that understand the mindset of younger players, but also buy into their culture and help them along the way. Where did you used to spend your free time, Franny? Were you down the, snoo- down the snooker club or anything like that? Or was it <laughs> inside with your slippers on? <laughs> it wasn't certainly in a group of millionaires, that's for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I've never been a drinker. So, you know, that's, you know, pubs and clubs and things like that wasn't really my thing at all. And uh, yeah, I was, I was very blinkered and focused as a player. Um, I, I had to be, I think, to, uh, to try and uh, play at the level that, that, that I, was, I was aiming for. But um, yeah, it was, a lot of the guys, you know, very much like nowadays, golf has always been a, a bit of a social thing, hadn't it, to, uh, to enjoy for the, for the sportsmen to take them away from, uh, from their own sport. But uh, yeah, I was pretty useless at that as well. So that coupled that and football, I was struggling quite a lot, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably why you played for so long, Franny. <laughs> they take on Leicester, do Everton. Now they're struggling with injuries, consistency, COVID, like everyone else. Uh, it's particularly at the back where they found their issues this season, Franny. How do you build that confidence within a defence? 
you used to be a defender. Is it simply just keeping clean sheets or is that too obvious a thing to say? Well, certainly clean sheets go a long way to helping, don't they? Um, I, I, I think it's, um, you know, you, losing like winning as well can become a, a bit of a habit and there, there's quite clearly that confidence element to it. Um, you know, I, I, I think there's, there's the resilience you show as a, as, as a group, individually, collectively, uh, and and almost being on that sort of middle middle wave, you know, not getting. I'm speaking personally here, and you know, and I know we used to try and approach it a little bit like this. Not not getting too carried away with the successes and the wins, not being too down in the dumps when when you know things are going bad or things aren't going right, and um, you know, just trying to keep that level playing a little bit. So yeah, it's, uh, it's 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 staying as positive as you can, maybe having that initial disappointment. Um, but then almost trying to put that out out your mind altogether or to the back of your mind and then moving forward. And, 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 and that's the good thing about football. Games come around so quick, don't they? So if you've had a bad game or a bad performance, you know there's another opportunity or hopefully you know, you're going to be involved in that to, to put right what might have been a, a, a bad score or a bad performance. Um, so yeah, confidence is a big thing. Um, and yeah, just something that they, they need to sort of try and have that resilience and stick with really to, to think that better things around the corner. I find it interesting when it comes to talking about how do you tighten up a defence and how do you get clean sheets? Because as a coach, you can't just go, oh, go and keep a clean sheet, lads. You know, it's, just, it's not quite like that. Something needs to be done or there needs to be a trigger. Whereas, you know, we talk about strikers and how they get their confidence, Rob, and it's just scoring goals, isn't it? Um, but, you know, how many chances do you need to score a goal? It's not quite the same as how many defensive mistakes do you need to make before you let one in? So I guess it's slightly more unforgiving at the back, but how, how do you go about setting that right, those defensive issues? Is it just a case of just hoping that it happens in one game? Well, I think a lot of people know, obviously, from my work that I'm kind of really into tactical analysis and looking at, at the nuance of the game. And I think now in, when you look at modern training and look at modern coaching, that with that confidence, it, it comes through knowing your job, through knowing what you're supposed to do. The more coaches, I think, that free will and allow just players to do what they want or have that more expression on the pitch tend to have teams that are not as successful. So I, I think that that's the main crux now, whether it's at the front or at the back. You know, if you take, again, a striker who might be 18, 19 and 20 and has a run and scores lots of goals, how do you develop them to the next stage? It always comes down to the training plan. Whereas I think in years gone by, a hot striker like, I don't know, Michael Owen at 18, you'd have just said, keep doing what you're doing, keep going, you know, get the ball to him, get him in the box, score goals. So I think there's a balance there now about preparation. And this is really where COVID is a problem, because if you want to prepare your teams properly, you need to be in the training ground, you need to be doing your work, you need to be fit, you need to be doing all the video work that goes with it. And it's a big job, it takes time. So I, I think all of those things are massively important in the modern game. Yeah, and it's probably unlikely any of those things will be happening from a Leicester perspective just simply because they've had to shut the training ground for two days to sanitise it and, and kind of keep people away from um, from the kind of the, the hub of the illness, as it were. And it's interesting, actually, because you mentioned having tactical awareness and not freewheeling. And Brendan Rogers, I think, is widely thought of as someone who does have that um, ability to, to be able to, to craft his sides tactically. So it is interesting that his sides have been quite leaky this season defensively uh, Everton against Leicester 12pm Sunday final game we're going to talk about on this week's episode of the show Watford against Crystal Palace takes place at Vicarage Road 3 o'clock on Saturday 
Crystal Palace, quite simply, have drawn too many games, Franny. They need to start finding more wins. And against the Watford side, who are also struggling this season, it's a good opportunity for them to do so. Yeah, it is. And I, I think what we're seeing with Crystal Palace this season is a, a, a different approach with Patrick Vieira at the helm. Um, you know, I was at the game against Southampton midweek, as you, as you mentioned. And, um, you know, there's... there's they're, in the past, you probably would have said to a degree with respect to, to, to the rest of the team, you know, stop Wilfred Zaha, you, you pretty much stop Crystal Palace. Uh, and now they've got threats throughout the team. You know, there's the positivity, there's Conor Gallagher, who's like been a real breath of fresh air, um, such an exciting talent. Um, but the, the, the mixture and the balance and the, the philosophy quite clearly that Vieira wants to play and how he wants to play the game is... Uh, I would say a positive thing for Palace, um, but yeah, they've just got to try and turn those draws, a lot of them that they've had, you know, into victories. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be an interesting journey to follow this one because I think you know, it's, it's one of those clubs that again could could quite surprise us, um, you know, with with what we maybe initially thought, especially given the start that they had at the beginning of the season as well. So, yeah, very much one to mm. to watch out for, I think. Just finally then, Rob, on this, Vieira's impressed me. Has he impressed you as well? Absolutely. I was just about to say, for me, I think Palace are the transformation project of the season so far. You know, when you look at what they were doing tactically under Roy Hodgson last year and obviously in previous seasons, as Franny said there, stop that front line stops Zaha and you're okay. You can you can get a result against them. You can do something. Yeah, and the stats the stats proved that as well at the time, didn't it? With with Zaha when he wasn't in the team, you know their their points accumulated was far far lower. Totally, and and I think when you look at them now, they play through the lines beautifully. Gallagher does his thing. They play four three three. They look like a proper football team now, and that's no offense to Roy Hodgson, but. It feels like the kind of the ghosts of that period of Crystal Palace have been wiped away by Vieira. And it was a big challenge for him coming to the Premier League because he's kind of had some stop-start um, kind of success as a coach himself in other teams. But I think he's come here, he's, he's put his imprint on the team and said, this is my philosophy and I want to do this and I want to do it my way. And, and I think Palace, we've shown, they're a much more entertaining team and they're much more dangerous. Yeah, 100%. Anyway, Crystal Palace uh, take on Watford at Vicarage Road this weekend, 3 o'clock on Saturday. And that's it for our weekend preview of the Premier League games. As we say, we don't know whether these games are going to go ahead. Um, this might be the last football we talk about for uh, for a couple of weeks, depending on what's announced or not announced, as it might be, by the Premier League. We don't know as yet. But Rob, Franny, thank you for joining me as ever and, and hope, wishing you the best of health as well and a, a happy festive period, whatever you might be doing, even if that does involve no football, but we'll, we'll get through it. I'm sure we'll find a way through it. Uh, don't forget if you hit subscribe, that way you won't miss an episode of the podcast again. Brand new shows every day of the season, including on Christmas Day, where you can catch up with our Christmas special, where we'll be hearing from Franny and the likes of Paul Dickov and several other players that are featured on the show throughout the course of the season about some of their best Christmas memories being professional footballers. So you don't want to miss that. But that's it from us today. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time. The Dugout Premier League Preview Football Social Daily 
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.